This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and the ABC Listen app. At the weekend, the Archbishop of Canterbury will place the solid gold, jewel-encrusted, 350-year-old St Edward's crown on the head of King Charles III. Charles will also accept the ancient symbols of monarchy, a scepter and an orb representing religious and moral authority. The coronation is a constitutional event, but it's also deeply religious, traditionally Anglican. For a monarch who presides over a multicultural, multi-faith Britain and Commonwealth, this raises questions. In this special edition of the program, we'll explore these issues. Let's start, though, with an insight into the man himself. Simon Woolley is a close friend of King Charles. He's a member of the House of Lords and principal of Homerton College, Cambridge. He's the first black man to head an Oxford or Cambridge college. He ran Operation Black Vote, a civil rights organisation. And he forged a friendship when Charles was Prince of Wales and Britain was in despair over racial injustice. So what does Lord Woolley think the coronation should look like? I think people need to see themselves when they come to a 21st century coronation of the king in all aspects of music and faiths and colour. There's a great canvas for the king and the palace to demonstrate who we are in the 21st century. I've never put on a ceremony like this. This is a ceremony like no other. (laughs) You know, lots of pomp and lots of extravagance. But I think you've got to be creative. You need a creative director that is able to use the canvas and colour and not just an archaic pomp, which arcs back to a very much a bygone era. A little island culture with empire imbued and dominance of the empire, we can no longer have that type of coronation because we've moved on. Do you think an hereditary monarchy can really ever be truly diverse? They have to reflect the views. You know, I do think in terms of the king representing all people in this country, is an acknowledgement that we are a multicultural society. Now, there's arguments raging on whether or not we should have a monarchy. But there is something to be said about something being beyond party politics, which in this country, like in the United States and many other countries, has become very tribal and very toxic. And sometimes you need that a level that is beyond that to bring people together. You're an example, by the way, of someone who is well beyond party politics. You've worked with politicians on all sides. Tell me how you became a friend of King Charles. How did you first meet? I'd met him many years ago in a ceremonial, I guess, state when he comes by and shakes someone's hands and moves on. But in terms of a, a friendship, it was by accident, really at the height of the Black Lives Matter when I was speaking on radio stations like yours and TV and conferences saying that we need national leadership to acknowledge the depth of pain and inequity. Out of the blue, I got a call from Clarence House asking for a meeting, and I thought it would be over Zoom, as a matter of fact. (laughs) We were just coming out of lockdown, and he said, no, can you come to my house? 
And when I went into his house in Clarence House, there was a place in his house where he has formal meetings. He said, no, could you come to my private quarters? You know, so it was really very personal. We were due to speak for about 30, 40 minutes. We spent two and a half hours chatting, like I am to you. Yeah. During that conversation, there was lots of shared interests, shared passions about how essentially we can make our country and the world a better place. That was the basis of our friendship. Mm. Lord Woolley, the Black Lives Matter protests across the world were quite understandably rather angry at times. But what do you think then Prince Charles saw going on beneath the anger? I think back then when he was the prince saw the pain the raw pain of decades of people viewing them less than and seeing that they were not afforded the opportunity that a society should, that they deserve. And he was struck and moved by that. What I viewed was a man who has always wanted purpose in his life. Purpose around the environment was his his big passion, but purpose around his people. And he couldn't stay quiet and he couldn't stay on the sidelines. So he asked me, having heard me, say that the Black Lives Matter protest, the death of George Floyd and COVID and the way that it disproportionately affected black and brown people ought to be a catalyst for the biggest, greatest conversations this country has ever had. And he agreed. And he said, how can I help? And what did you tell him? I mean, how can he help? How can he help now as king? When I said then and I say now, one of the big roles that a prince and a king can have, particularly in that non-party political space, is be the facilitator-in-chief of great conversations. I said to him, you should call Lewis Hamilton and Anthony Joshua and, and the big business leaders and sit around the table and say, look at the power, look at the intellect, look at the passion in this room. Collectively, we can do great things. What are we going to do? He agreed. He literally said to me, I mean, I see myself as a relative nobody. I mean, you know, I'm an activist and I want to do great things. But he said to me, use me, use me as a conduit to bring people together, to have conversations, to raise aspirations and move the dial. It's very humble of you to say you're a relative nobody. I don't think anyone looking at your resume would say that. But what did King Charles say to you that also indicated a willingness, maybe even a readiness to confront the terrible aspects of British colonialism? Yeah. On that, along with many other issues, the starting point, which he wholeheartedly agrees, is to have adult conversations. And when you think that you are the recipient of the enslavement of my descendants and great resources, that's a tough conversation to have. You can't hurtle into it because it's laden with bear traps. But you have to have an acknowledgement that you have to have those conversations. They're uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable. There could be ramifications. But you can't deny history. History is what it is. The only question is, is that whether you choose to ignore it, and particularly how has history influenced the present structures that lock people out, that fail to give people dignity? And so it's not just about knowing what occurred in the past, 
but how it's influenced the institutions that continue to deliver gross inequity today. Mm. What does he and the institution need to give up? I think the starting point is have the conversation. How do we rebuild our institutions to deliver greater equity now? Does that include giving up and or restructuring our major, major institutions? And also as well that reflecting that, for example, Africa cannot be the resource-rich continent that it is and still be on its knees without changing global institutions. The king can't do that, of course, but we can have conversations about global inequity that keeps the resource-rich continent of Africa on its knees. Much of Africa, by the way, is part of the Commonwealth, the old empire. Is it too romantic, Lord Woolley, to think of that Commonwealth today still as some sort of family? I know the late Queen cherished the Commonwealth and she cherished the idea of equality among all peoples of the Commonwealth. But is it too romantic an idea today? I would put romanticism aside and say, what can you do with a commonwealth of countries? That's a more productive, effective question to ask. It is most definitely no longer a British empire. That's the starting point. But you've got a golden thread towards all these countries, and particularly the African countries, and with insight, but also cooperation from other global entities that we say, how can Africa compete and uh, be a continent that can interact with other continents on a fairer basis. Because at the moment, we don't have that. The platform that the Commonwealth gives us is a unique platform. The only question is whether or not it can be used to challenge the status quo. Lord Simon Woolley, Principal of Homerton College, Cambridge, and a friend of the King. What form will the coronation take? How will it reflect modern Britain? We know that four members of the House of Lords, a Muslim, a Jew, a Hindu and a Sikh, will have key roles. They'll carry to the altar of Westminster Abbey the ancient ornaments used in the coronation. Pope Francis has given Charles a processional cross featuring tiny shards of wood believed to come from the cross on which Christ himself was crucified. But for all the pomp and statecraft, this is essentially a religious ceremony. Catherine Pepinster is author of Defenders of the Faith, the British Monarchy, Religion and the Coronation. The coronation for hundreds of years has been in Westminster Abbey, which many people describe as the mother church of the Church of England and other people describe it as the parish church of England. So the setting will be an Anglican setting. There are three key parts, the anointing of the monarch, the oath-taking, that's not quite so religious. It's more legal, but it's about religion, and the crowning, and the monarch is crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So those are the key components, if you like, surrounded by prayers, surrounded by readings and surrounded by religious music. So it adds up to a pretty religious ceremony. You've raised this question of whether it could be what you call a melting pot coronation. What would a melting pot coronation look like? 
of course, you know, we haven't had a coronation for 70 years. Britain has changed very much. The Commonwealth changed in that time too. So there have been debates about how it might change. So I think that there are very likely to be the involvement of different Christian denominations. And I think there'll also be the involvement of other faiths. I think it's entirely likely there will be a procession that would involve uh, Muslim representatives, Jewish representatives. So we have many Hindu Sikhs, etc., in, in the UK, and of course from the Commonwealth too. So I think they'll be involved. The thing that is worth remembering is that Westminster Abbey has form in involving other faiths because a significant event, annual event, that's held at Westminster Abbey is the Commonwealth Day service every year that the royal family attend. And that for many, many years has had the involvement of representatives of other faiths. So they know how to do it. And the other thing that happened was between the death of Elizabeth II and her funeral, there were several church services around Britain in the capitals of the devolved nations, those are Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast, and they had the involvement of other denominations. And the one in Cardiff, a Muslim said one of the prayers as well. So they know how to do it. Mm. Uh, there is a very sacred, but it's also very secretive part of a coronation ceremony. We haven't seen it for, what, 71 years? And we didn't really even see it 71 years ago when the late Queen was crowned. What happens during the anointing? The anointing, according to people I've spoken to who are religious experts, say that's the most essential religious service, much more important than the coronation. This is the moment when the monarch is blessed. It's very much like a sacrament. It's akin to priestly ordination in many ways. God's grace is bestowed on the person and God's grace will help them in their service over the years. And they're anointed, as often happens in sacraments such as baptism and confirmation, with holy oils. When this last happened with Queen Elizabeth II, she was hidden by a canopy from both the congregation inside Westminster Abbey and also from the television cameras. That was the first coronation shown live on television. But that moment was viewed as so sacred and so precious and so intimate that it wasn't shown. Yes, isn't part of the new monarch's breast exposed and a cross is made on it by the Archbishop of Canterbury? That's why it's so secretive? Yes, the head is also anointed with oil and, and the breast too. Yes, the sign of the cross made. It is an intimate, very holy moment. And Elizabeth II was stripped of some of her very rich coronation robes and then she was just in a white shift for that moment. So very simple gown, rather like babies are dressed in white or adults in white when they're baptised. It was almost a form of initiation and it, it suggests a kind of purity about it. I 
personally don't think that the king is going to be suddenly removing what is probably going to be military uniform and be suddenly in a kind of white tunic. I think that's unlikely. When it's a queen uh, who's being anointed and crowned, there's something a bit more sacrificial about it to a slightly disturbing extent, I think. And uh, I just don't think it will have that kind of characteristic with an elderly man. Now, there is, uh, let us say, a little transactional business that goes on in the midst of all this religious piety. I did note in your book you say that uh, there's an oath that the king will uphold the Church of England, but some have rankled at this oath. They say the Archbishop of Canterbury is basically extracting privileges for the Church of England before he agrees to anoint the new monarch. (laughs) Quid pro quo there. Indeed. In that way, the coronation does remind us all that in Britain, church and state are very much intertwined. The Church of England is the established church. And in 1953, when Elizabeth II was crowned, when she had her coronation, that was possibly more acceptable for a couple of reasons. One was that we weren't such a multicultural, religiously diverse nation as we are now. The other thing that's happened is that the different nations that make up the United Kingdom, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, have asserted their identity far more, I think, than they had in 1953. So, it feels more noticeable somehow that the Church of England is taking this role for itself, crowning and being in charge of the coronation of a monarch for the UK and indeed for the realms elsewhere. And some people might say, well, should they be doing that? Is that really their role? How is King Charles's interest in all religion, not just Christianity, a useful form of soft power for modern Britain? I think it really has been. And in the past, there have been people who raise their eyebrows at the involvement of the heir to the throne with other religions, the extent to which he has seemed to be so interested in, in other religions, particularly Islam. And at one time, he said that he would rather have the title defender of faith rather than uh, the traditional title of defender of the faith that monarchs in Britain take. That caused quite a controversy when he said that 30 years ago, but he's manoeuvring a way to do this, yet also hang on to tradition. So when he acceded to the throne and we had the gathering of what's called the Accession Council. He was proclaimed as king. He was proclaimed as defender of the faith, not defender of faith. And yet, at the same time, he held a gathering in Buckingham Palace, a reception for faith leaders of different faiths, where he promised that it was his role as monarch to effectively defend all faiths. And that interest in other faiths has been something that he's taken abroad. His interest in Islam has been noted in Middle East countries, and that has helped our government. So I think he probably thinks he has, after all, been on the right course all along. 
Catherine Pepinster, author of Defenders of the Faith, The British Monarchy, Religion and the Coronation. And you're with me, Andrew West, on the Religion and Ethics Report here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. So how has the King's commitment to religious pluralism shaped attitudes towards the monarchy among non-Christian communities? Professor Iftikhar Malik of Bath Spa University knows Charles well through their joint involvement in the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies. Prince Charles, as he was Prince of Wales, he was very mobile at the communitarian level. He would visit uh, Muslim mosques, he would visit Hindu temples in London, he went to Amritsar, you know, the holiest city for the Sikhs. He maintained a kind of balance when it came to politics of the Middle East between Israel and his Arab friends. So I think he starts with this experience of multiculturalism within the British context and at a global level. He is a patron of uh, this Oxford Centre of Islamic Studies. I remember he came there in 1990s and he made a speech which was flashed across the newspapers. And many Muslims thought that he was very close to Islam. So I think many Hindus feel the same way and Sikhs feel the same way. So I think there is a receptivity within his own person of Britain being multicultural. He's a different generation from that of his father, because his father was a very interesting man, as you know. Unlike That's understating mother, I mean, it. Pretty much like his mother. <laughs> <laughs> because he, he was known for his jokes, and some of those jokes sadly used to be ethnic. But anyway, uh, he also traveled to all these 54 countries, which once made the British Empire. Um, seen his pictures of Duke of Edinburgh and the late Queen uh, in the Khyber Pass, driving through Lahore and Karachi in an open car. And it looks like a different Pakistan. It was so safe. Jackie Kennedy visiting Karachi and Lahore. So I think uh, the Queen created those positive and healthy traditions as the leader of the Commonwealth. And she was the least controversial person when it came to inter-Commonwealth political issues, like issues between India and Pakistan. So I think Charles has a good beginning. He's very well educated and socially he has been very mobile. And he is uh, well received in the Arab world. And I don't see any major criticism from Israel or Jewish community. He is technically the leader of Anglican Church. In an unstated way, he's also a leader of entire Britain. That was what I was going to ask, uh, Professor Malik. How is his position as supreme governor, not the spiritual head, but supreme governor of the Church of England, received in multi-faith Britain? Because That is still an official position that he holds. It's not something that he wants to uh, relinquish. So how is that perceived among non-Christians, do you think? I think it's not controversial when it comes to Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs, if I'm not wrong. I think they understand the fact that Britain for a long, long time has been a Christian society and uh, there is a very interdependent relationship between the church and the state, though state by practice and by intent is secular without calling itself secular. So in that sense, I think it works very well with the other smaller religious communities. And the state allows uh, Hindus, Muslims, you know, even atheists to establish their own places, their own institution. Of course, nobody's asking him to retire from his position as a patron of the Anglican Church. But I think his approach towards other religious communities has been based on egalitarianism, 
celebration and receptivity. So it's not going to be a controversy. But I think most of the Muslims do not have a position of a leader, Khalifa or somebody. But I think they know that he is very much interested in Islam. His view of Islam is based on equality and spirituality. And I think he is into Sufi traditions as well. Already his exposure and his interaction with the religious communities has been very positive. Mm. What would you do to make the coronation, which will still have at its heart a Christian ceremony because he will be crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, but what would you do to make it more reflective of multicultural and multi-faith Britain? I think the British, as you know, is a very traditional society. So I think that nobody minds these traditions, whether they are being performed in the parliament or in the church or in terms of relationship between the crown and the creed. I don't think he has to, because I think people understand the fact that it is a predominantly Christian society, though some of my Christian friends are worried that with the latest census, the number of Christians has steadily decreased. I think uh, people appreciate the fact that he is a leader of religious communities and especially of Christianity. But at the same time, by practice, Britain is a very tolerant society. And before its legal system, everybody is equal, irrespective of ethnicity, class, gender, or religious affiliation. So I think that works very well. For the system, because as I said in the 1960s, when multiculturalism was introduced as a paradigm, lots of people were deeply worried how, in a very, very traditional society with an imperial background and Christian foundations, would be able to deal with all these dozens of numerous ethnic and religious communities who might pull Britain apart. It's still, many people have reservations about multiculturalism, but when people look at France, for example, and the model of assimilation. People think Britain is not that badly because Britain has been comparatively peaceful society based on coexistence. I'm not saying that there are no sectarian tensions and all that, but they happen in every society. But law protects everybody, Mm. the legal tradition, the social tradition, and generally the receptivity of the society towards multiculturalism. They are very, very positive inducements. I'm thinking also of some very concrete things. We know, for example, that there have been some highly respected leaders of the Hindu and Muslim and Sikh communities who have been appointed to the House of Lords. We know that the last monarch appointed, I think, a couple of well-respected Muslim leaders as Lord's Lieutenant in a couple of counties. They are very important positions representing the monarch. But can you think of ways in which the monarch might, in a concrete way, diversify the court, as it were? I don't mean the legal court for Australian listeners, but the court, the royal court. (laughs) Well, you know, people are very understanding and second and third generation, because like I work on Muslim regions and former colonies, even in Africa and places like India, Pakistan. And I think, I'm not saying there's nostalgia for the British Raj, but Britain today is seen in a different light. There are people who are very critical of colonialism, and we're talking about decolonizing humanities and history and whatnot. But there are people who do appreciate the legal system that Britain has followed and think about Nehru, think about Kenyatta, think about Jinnah, think about Gandhi. 
all these leaders who were trained in Britain, at one level, you could say Britain is, quote unquote, notorious for its imperial past. But at the same time, Britain was and is appreciated for the legal system that it developed over the centuries, and especially in more recent years. I think King Charles' accessibility to all kind of communities at different levels and staying in contact with the communities within Britain, I think itself would be a living proof that he is representing the entire British society in a well-meaning way. His work since the 1980s, I don't think he has to radically change or the government has to radically change the setup, legal setup or the royal court to make it all encompassing. I mean, the, the most powerful person after the crown happens to be the prime minister of an ethnic community. Professor Iftikhar Malik of Bath Spa University. And that's the show for today. You can find us using the search function at the ABC Listen app. We're in the Society and Culture section. Or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Hong Jang and Craig Tillmouth. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.